glad you guys are with us. Um, we're going to take some time this morning, as we usually do, to preach the Word of God and, and to look at what God has to say to us in the Scriptures. Right now, we are in a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, which we are almost done. We'll be in this book for three more weeks and then do some uh, Christmassy type things. We call them open mic type things, miscellaneous. Uh, pastors, elders can kind of choose what they want to preach for a while uh, through the new year and then start something new in, uh, in, in January. So, uh, but we have three weeks left in this series on uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul's first letter to this church in Thessalonica. So if you didn't know that, a lot of the New Testament letters or epistles, we call them, are uh, titled by the city that they were written to. And so uh, whether it was the Apostle Paul or someone else that brought that gospel uh, to the city in the first place, a lot of times it was, was Paul. Uh, we looked at him, uh, the person Paul, and kind of how we, he was converted through the, the story of the book of Acts, uh, Acts uh, 9 and following, but then how and, and under what circumstances he went to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 before the series began back in September. But um, Paul wrote two letters to this church, and he's writing to encourage them. And, and you, you see this come up a lot, and uh, we'll see it today too, but last Sunday, I believe, as well. And then sometimes just in general, towards the end of his letters, you see Paul say things like, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, or now concerning this or that, or but concerning this. And so they have correspondence a lot of times. Or uh, Paul just might hear from some of his associates, like Timothy or Epaphroditus, that, who travel to be with these churches and kind of bring back care packages to him if he's in prison or just a different city or something like that about what's going on. And so in this church, uh, there's not, like in some of Paul's other churches, a lot of false doctrine being propagated. Uh, this is actually a very, very healthy church, even for being just a matter of months old. They're, they're quite healthy, which is you know, kind of shocking. Actually, testimony to God's grace that they're baby Christians, but they have tons of love for each other, and they are holding up the gospel, the word of the gospel, the cornerstone of the faith, which is Christ and him crucified and raised really well. They're not moving on from that, which a lot of Paul's churches like Galatians and in Corinthians, there's a lot of messes going on there as well, but they're kind of starting to move on, or some factions of the church are kind of being tempted to move on from grace, and so Paul writes back about that, doctrinal matters, but uh, here he's writing to write about doctrinal matters, everything's theological, but um, writing to encourage them to keep their hand to the plow, so to speak, to keep on doing what they're doing, uh, to keep encouraging, keep preaching, keep loving, and in these last two weeks, specifically with an angle towards uh, living in light of the future. So that's what we've been looking at uh, these past couple of weeks. Sam, turn me down just a little bit. I feel a little bit uh, hot. Turn me down just a touch. Thanks, man. Um, all right, so our perspective then, as we've been saying uh, last week and this week, uh, is that, and this is true for all human beings, not just Christians, but our perspective on the future dictates how we live today. So if your perspective on the future, Christian or not, is, is poor, it's going to affect how you live now, right? So, uh, and if it's, if it's positive, it'll affect you in the present as well. So for the Christian, uh, the future is more than just bright, and the Bible is constantly pounding this home, not just the present, the past, we look back to the cross, what happened there, but the future is more than just bright. It's perfect. It's the best of all possible worlds. It's a world in which God will walk again face-to-face -face with human beings. That's guaranteed. We are destined to have that future. It can't be lost. And so a part of what it means to be a believer is to kind of face that future, to have hope in it positively in an ongoing sense, and then live accordingly uh, in, in the present. That's kind of what we'll talk about today, and last week was that as well. If you weren't here last week, we talked about some of the how surrounding Christ's a second advent or his second return his arrival to bring usher in the, uh, the end of history, the end of the church age, 
uh, we call it. So we, we talked about that. Paul spoke in generalities, but still mentioned how the Christian living and the dead both will be caught up to be with Christ at the end when he returns. How the dead will experience bodily resurrection, not just spiritual resurrection, but bodily resurrection, and the living will experience transformation into their new heavenly versions of their old bodies. And how the dead, therefore, are not at a disadvantage, and ultimately how Christ will descend from heaven to earth to return here to transform the earth into a new earth, to bring heaven here and live with his people forever here. But, but know how general that really is. Everything I just said is very, uh, it's, it's fascinating, it's a wonderful hope, right? But it's also very uh, general. There, there's a lot we don't know about the future as well. Even last week, I spoke with uh, a lot of you who resonated with what the Bible was saying about the future, but who also had a ton of extra great questions uh, about related things, uh, much of which there just wasn't a clear answer for, because we just don't know exactly how Christ is going to appear, for example, to all people at once, and how heaven can truly come to earth. In what sense will there be a new earth? Will it be completely redone, or will it be this one kind of regenerated? We kind of lean towards the latter, but you know, we don't know these things, but um, we can kind of piece together some answers, but we also, um, we also don't know a lot, too. What we do know, though, and I think what Christians should believe on the matter can um, be summed up in what we just kind of said, what First Thessalonians, the end of 4 and the beginning of 5 says, but I wanted to read our statement of faith here, too. This is what all of our leadership and members believe uh, at, at Hiawatha Church, which pulls from what we looked at last week. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. It's very earthly. And the establishment of his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So bodily resurrection. We're not waiting for the resurrection of the spirit, spiritually speaking, up to heaven. We're waiting for Christ to come here and resurrect bodies on earth. Like Jesus' body was raised on earth physically. The final judgment, the eternal happiness of the righteous, and the endless suffering of, of the wicked. So there is a lot there, uh, but again, note how very general that is. Christ-centered, it's very earthly, it's very physical and bodily, it's very eternal, and I think very gospel-centered, like we said last week, uh, in the sense that we believe that Christ, we, we say this all the time, but I don't know if we know we really, what we really mean when we say it, when we say that Christ will return. When we say Christ will come back, we mean he will descend and come get us. He in love will come rescue people who are crying out for his help. That's a picture of God that we just don't get if we believe only in ascension unto heaven. We don't believe, in other words, that, that Christians don't or shouldn't. Uh, and that's not heresy, but it's not helpful doctrine either. That God is waiting for a collection of souls to kind of well up before him in heaven. We believe God actually loves us and is going to come get us. We're in trouble. We're dying. There's people are being, we, we are in a great tribulation of sorts we are being persecuted unto death we are being tempted away from him we are being not and not we don't get there of course if we truly believe in him but we are under attack like israel was multiple times in the old testament and god heard their cries and came those are pictures of the ultimate new testament reality and now the church cries out for him to come back right and so the idea of of god descending then to come get us is a very good news gospel-centered idea rather than or as opposed to the idea of us ascending into heaven uh, for forever. We don't, actually, Jesus says in John 3, no one ascends to heaven. Only the Son of Man, Jesus, is the one who's been to heaven, but he, he descends to earth, but no one ascends uh, 
to heaven. So to kind of get at that idea of we don't get to him with our lofty righteousness or ideas or philosophies or good works, but he comes to sinners, he comes to walk among us, he comes to become like us so that he might die for us and absorb God's wrath in our place. All right, so this week what we're going to do is look at more of the how and more of the when. And so this is basically a part, like I titled it here, Living in Light of the Future Part 2, basically a part two to last week, but some different angles on it too that serves uh, to in a lot of ways be its own sermon, which is why we broke it in, into two. So let me read uh, the passage and fold it again. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11, and then we'll come back and break this into kind of two uh, neat sections here, verses 1 to 3 to begin. So verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know, are, are fully aware, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to, to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. All right, so let's look at a few things in the first few verses first, and we'll come back to the latter part here. But like I said, he, just, he keeps talking a little bit more about the nature of Christ's second advent, his second arrival, his second coming. More on the how, how that's going to occur, and a little, little bit more on the when. But before we get there, I think it's interesting, too, just kind of at face value, how the issue of times and seasons pertaining to the second coming was a first century issue as well. That might be something that you guys, maybe you're not aware of, but I think a lot of you probably are. You've heard some things about, hey, there's been four blood moons this, you know, this year or something. Is that a sign? Or, you know, it, and people speculate about specific dates and kind of gather around those dates and uh, could be healthy, could be not so healthy. But uh, it's not just a, a, an issue with our day, right? This is people were asking the question, Right away, even actually, we don't read it here, but before Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection, the disciples ask, well, when are you going to fully usher in your kingdom? This is from Acts 1. When are you going to fully usher in your kingdom before he ascends? And Jesus' answer is always kind of, it's not really for you to know that. Don't worry about that. But it, so the question's not wrong, but unnecessary obsession about specifics is wrong. It goes beyond what the Bible teaches, what Jesus says, what we can know, and I think it leaves us in a place of hyper-speculating rather than resting in Jesus. That is possible to do, and it should kind of, maybe not scare us, but it should kind of give us a heart check. It's possible to even, uh, you know, obsess a bit about things that pertain to Christ without obsessing about Christ himself. It's kind of scary. That, ha that can happen. It happens a lot for us. You can be really interested in theological things, but not so much the person of Christ at the same time, and it can be a distraction. If we're over-obsessed about the dates and times, the exact uh, signs that precede the return of Christ or whatever it is, but, but not Christ himself, uh, that's where things get, uh, can get off track and get, get unhealthy. But again, we just don't know a lot. 
the when here, according to this passage, is quite simple, right? Jesus' return can happen at any time, period. Like, like a thief in the night or a woman going into labor, it can happen at any time. That's really, that's all we know. There are really no special warning signs. Uh, you know, Jesus elsewhere in the Bible, he does talk about when his disciples ask him, what are the signs of, of the end? And this is before he dies on the cross and is raised again. But he does respond, and he talks about things like the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, which did happen in A.D. 70. There being birth pang-like events like earthquakes and famines and so forth, wars. And the gospel, first going forth to all nations. But those aren't things we so much wait for because they've already happened, past tense, or are happening, present tense. Uh, Hebrews 1 uh, here as well, this is an important phrase, if you didn't know this, about just the scriptures and about Jesus' arrival into the world uh, as a baby first, but then ultimately his death and resurrection. Hebrews 1 refers to Jesus' first coming as the last days. So in these last days, God has spoken, this is written 2,000 years ago. In these last days, these final days of history, Christ has, or God has spoken to us by Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate word. So we have been in the last days for 2,000 years. We've been in the end of history. This is how we understand uh, eschatology or the study of the end or how the Bible kind of lays itself out timeline-wise. Everything before Jesus was preparatory, but when he came into the world, he ushered in the end. There's no more better, more climactic, more theological, significant, spiritual way that God's going to speak to the world than Jesus Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. That was God's final word. Don't keep looking. There's nothing more God is going to say other than that over and over and over again. It's his ultimate love letter. It's his ultimate prophecy, his ultimate encouragement, his ultimate sermon is Jesus Christ and him crucified and him raised. So we've been in the last days for thousands of years. And so then for, as Christians then, we are not really looking for the end in terms of signs. So what signs in the world should we be looking for, whether we have a newspaper in hand or a magazine or whatever it is? What signs should we be looking for? Because we have the sign. Jesus' blood is the sign of the end. Jesus' resurrection is the sign of the end. Jesus coming into the world at all to fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament since the beginning is the end. We've been, we've been in it. And yes, it's going to climax in his return. Yes, it's going to, there is going to be an end that's going to be better than what we're experiencing now. There is a second coming, so we of course have to have that peace to our, to our theological understanding of the future, which is why we're, you know, this is what this part of this letter is all about. But what we're really looking for as Christians is not so much the end in terms of signs, but instead for Christ's imminent return. He could come back at any moment. There isn't something that has to be done in the world before he comes. So check boxes. He checked the one box. Come to the world and die for the sins of the world and, and rise again. Check. End of history. So that's why in the first century, uh, Paul could say, he actually talks about, he thinks that, that Christ is going to come back in his lifetime. Remember last, last week he said, we the living will not precede the dead. So he thinks that all of us who are alive now, Jesus is probably going to come back like next year, so those of us who are still alive are not at an advantage to the dead because the dead will be raised. But he's talking as though the churches of that, of that day should be ready because it could be at any time. 2,000 years, I always think about that. What if Paul just could... What if he knew, what if we knew that 2,000 years will go by until, from now, so the year 4,000, whatever. I mean, that'd be crazy, right? I mean, I, I don't, 
I can't imagine that being the case, but I'm sure Paul and the early church in the first century um, would, would just say absolutely no way, you know, to, uh, to that as well. So kind of a side thing there. But we look for Christ's imminent return, not signs that precede the end. We have our signs. It's very different. Luke 17, 26 to 32, this is uh, Jesus' teachings. Same idea. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, speaking of, of the end. There will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered, there were, until the day of Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So again, it's the idea of eminence, right? Could happen whenever. Even though there's warning signs to both these stories, the story of Noah and the flood in Genesis 6 to 9 and Genesis 19, the story where God rains fire and sulfur down in these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and brought judgment. There was a little bit of talk about it. There was warnings. There was angelic warning and divine warning. But even though there was that, it, it was still imminent. All of a sudden, drip, drip, it started to rain out of nowhere. And with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, too. So, um, so what Jesus is saying here is just those stories are typical of the end. Th- those are, are warnings, examples for what it's going to be like now another flood is coming another sodom and gomorrah event is coming and it's going to be and people will be notice it says here there will be no clear signs of that there will be no uh, as some christians think uh, a tribulation period of seven years or something more figurative at the end that we will clearly know then when the end of those seven year period will be so christ will come we can kind of date it out that way that's not what it's saying here. It's saying people will be getting married, they'll be going to rehearsal dinners, they'll be planting plants and gardens, planning out what their vegetable garden's going to look like for the year, they'll be going to their kids' conferences, they'll be biking to work, they'll be, they'll be at work starting projects that think will take 10 years to finish, they'll be hanging out with friends for a beer and a burger, and all of a sudden, the end. And there'll be no time to change our mind, because he'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. So, there's no like, initial warning where, where Christ starts to peel back the skies and says, all right, you can see my fingers, get ready. You know, it's like, no, it's lightning. You know, it, it's, it's instantaneous. It's, we don't have a chance to repent in that moment. So those stories in the Old Testament become typical, smaller images of what Christ is saying. Now, I am ushering in this new era, this fulfillment of those former things, and I am bringing judgment but also salvation. Like it was for Noah, there was an ark, there is a way out from God's wrath. I'm that new ark, but I'm also bringing wrath and punishment for sin. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a way out from the city. Like Lot was saved from that city. Like he, he was plucked out from that city. Uh, there's a way to get out of the city of fire. There's a way to get out of the city of destruction. There's a way to get out of the city of, of damnation. It's me. So all those stories are, are meant to point us ahead to Christ. And that's why he's tying his story, the son of Jesus saying the son of man, the days of Jesus are like those, but greater, because it's for the world. But again, note, the theme for today, to bring this back, imminence. It could happen at any time. We don't, it could happen before the service is over. We don't know when. All right, so why is it unclear? Just a little bit of a sidestep here. I think this is important and not talked about a lot necessarily, so, but I want to just address this. You might be wondering, why is this the case? 
Why is the exact date and time of Jesus' return unclear? Why is it hidden? We don't know exactly why, uh, but I think a couple things can be said. Practically, you know, if, if we knew, just think kind of on a hypothetical level, if we knew for sure the Bible said that Jesus was going to return in the year 3500, um, that wouldn't affect our life positively very much right now, right? It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't change us. It wouldn't kind of create, it wouldn't create an urgency in us to live with spiritual, to, to borrow from this metaphor, sobriety and awakeness. Because, well, you know, it's, it's, he's not coming back. So. so I think that God cares about us and he knows our, our you know, propensity uh, to rebel against him and to live in a lazy manner spiritually. And so he doesn't make the date clear to kind of propagate the, the, the contrary way of living with more urgency in our hearts. But theologically, I, I think that, uh, what, I guess that first thing's theological too, but, the, uh, but also it, it keeps us waiting for God. It keeps us humble. Right? It keeps God in control and us as, as the waiting party. It reminds us that he delivers salvation when he wants to on his time. In other words, it's by grace we're saved. If, if we knew everything, it could be misconstrued as a type of work of righteousness or work of righteous intellect before God. A type of we figure out our way to him salvation rather than he reveals himself to us in his own time type of salvation. No one goes to God, the Bible, Jesus says, without God first drawing him unto himself. That's true salvifically, but also intellectually and informationally as well. So God has to come to us. And I, so I think that it keeps us in our place, keeps us humble, it keeps us waiting for God, keeps us in a state of spiritual urgency. But the gospel idea there, I think, is that, you know, we don't, we don't know about his return in the same way that we can't save ourselves from our sins. Those are related. Uh, on an intellectual versus kind of works-based level, those, those things kind of have this synergy and, uh, and, and are related. So, so I think it, it, it harps at and undergirds this idea over and over again that God saves us by grace. He shows up when he wants to. We don't climb to him. There's no ladder. God comes down when he wants to on his time and love, and it keeps us in the right place uh, uh, spiritually before him. So it's actually a really, really good thing. It's humbling, but it's a really, really good thing to know that. All right, two things there, but so let's move on, verses 4 to 10. Uh, so that was more on the how and the when, but uh, the, the latter verses here are basically, uh, because it could happen literally at any time, Jesus' return, be prepared. Because it could happen at any time, be prepared, uh, speaking to the church. Verse 4 says, but you, Christian are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So it, it's an interesting twist in the metaphor here. Uh, he says, even though no one, Christian or not, will know the dates or times of Jesus' return, and, and even though we will all be caught off guard, in a sense, at his coming, Christians will not be surprised as though the day were like a thief. And so in one sense, this is, I think, a message for all, Christian or not, but thievery and birth pains are not happy images, right? They're not happy, kind of good, oh, this feels good images. So there's negative connotations here for the non-Christian, the yet-to-be-saved, that's not for the Christian. So we, we won't be surprised, he's saying, right? So there's a separation here between the church and the world. In one sense, it's like a thief and that it's imminence for all people, but in a special sense, it's like a thief for 
the, the unchurched or the, the, the non-Christian, the non-saved-by-Jesus' blood type people uh, out there. So, again, non-Christians will be surprised, but, but, we, but we won't. Because we'll be awake, Christians will be awake and expecting him. Now, Christians are like um, people who get up early at 4 a.m., make a cup of coffee, and drive to a scenic overlook facing east and just waiting for that beautiful sun to rise because they know it's going to. That's what a Christian is like. Uh, they're awake, they're sober, they're expectant, they're facing east, they're waiting for the return of Christ. Uh, their life has, the, the sunrise has kind of dictated how they spend their time. It's kind of what a Christian is like. But, but non-believers, to pull from this metaphor, are people who are drunk at night, uh, not living as though Christ will return. Uh, and this could be people who are kind of churched as well, but, um, but asleep and uh, not prepared. So for Christians then, and this is certainly a message for non-Christians too, because this can be the truth for, I mean, any of you who are here who are not saved yet, there's good news. Uh, God loves you, and he wants to save you unto this type of preparation. But this is still something Paul, to be clear, is writing to church, because otherwise it doesn't make sense for someone to be prepared if they don't know what they're prepared unto, you know, or for. So, so for Christians, he's talking about preparedness. Uh, verses 5 to 10, one more time, let me read this, and then we'll talk about it for the rest of our time. For you, church, are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or are asleep, we might live with him. So uh, a couple of angles on this, and I love the order he has here. This is, um, you know, if this is new to you, understand this is the way that Paul writes a lot. The New Testament hangs together this way so frequently. And what I mean by this is, it's movement from identity to action or the indicative to the imperative, that what's true about you to what you should therefore do. And so he starts in verse 5. What, what are you? Who, who are you? What's your identity? What's your nature? He says, you are children of light, ultimately referring to Christ. Christ is the light. This is not just a, a metaphor for people who are kind of good. This is people who are, who are in the light. There's no light in the world except God, ultimately. God made the sun. God, God is the light. Actually, in the end, in Revelation, it says that in the new earth, there will be no more sun because God's light that emanates from him will be enough to light the, the universe. God is light, 1 Timothy 6 says. And so basically here it's saying you are children of God. You are, this is your identity, if you're a Christian here today, you are a child of light. You are not striving to become a child of light. God has made you a child of light, his child. That is who you are. It's what the gospel has won you over to become. It's how much your sin has been forgiven and, and destroyed. And, and, and Paul is saying this to people who, who know this but need to be reminded, but they're, they're in a state of being sinners, right? So again, don't read this as, as something we need to strive unto. That's not wrong to do, but Paul's not saying this here. This is an indicative type statement. You are, these are people who are probably that morning sinned a bunch, but are still trusting in Jesus Christ alone wrestling with grace and saying, God, please let me escape. 
from sin. Pull me back in to the ark. But sinners nonetheless, and maybe who don't even fully believe this, but who are still clinging for dear life onto the hope of it, Paul's saying this is who you are. Because of God. If it's, if it's religion or works that save us, how could, Paul, how could anybody ever say this to someone? You are a child of light? No, you're not. I mean, who, who on their own strength has lived like a child of light this morning? I mean, I know it's metaphorical here but for a second, but just, I mean, honestly, with, uh, on our own strength, I, I have been you know, off the deep end a child of darkness in the first few hours of, of the morning here. I mean, it's, it's not even close. If we're living by works, it's by perfection, and, and no one is. And so this idea of God pronouncing identity, if you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you, your identity transfers over from darkness to light. You become his child. You become adopted into his family. So, so again, don't, when it says day here, light, this means more Christ's possession more than it does good. It means you, you are not, it doesn't mean so much good people, though that might be, you know, true for the church who are being transformed into Christ's image. It actually means more Christ's possession. You are a child of the king. That's your identity. So then verses 6 to 10 kick in. And so because of that, or so then, don't live as though you're a child of the night, he essentially says, like you're asleep. In other words, again, live as though it's 4 a.m. in the dead of winter, pitch black outside, but you're awake, facing east, just waiting for that sun to rise. Live that way. Romans 13, 12 uh, says, same imagery, the night is nearly over, the day's almost here. That was true 2,000 years ago because he was in the last days as well, and it's true today. The day is almost over, or the night is almost over, the day is almost here. Live, Christian, as though that's the case. Look at your heart, look at your mind, look at your beliefs, look at your loving posture before a dead and dying world and towards your church family and ask, am I saved? What do I believe? Am I hopeful for his return? When he comes, will I be ashamed, clinging to my works or joyful clinging to his crucified and resurrected body, knowing that's what makes me righteous before God? There's, there's a vast chasm between those two that can barely even be compared. Even though the former sounds religious, it is so far uh, outside what the Bible's saying that uh, it, it's, you can't even measure it. So what does this look like uh, practically? Because he's kind of steeped in, in the metaphor here, right? Uh, I kind of hinted at some of these things, but let's go back into this a little bit. What does it look like to be sober spiritually and awake spiritually? And there's so much to say here. I think basically what you're saying with that question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? When you're saying, what does it look like to be sober spiritually and awake spiritually? So, I mean, this could be like, we could be here until dinner time easily, you know, talking about this question. But I want to preach this passage or look at it with you guys um, from this particular angle today. Otherwise, we'd be here, you know, forever and take too many bunny trails. It'd be too confusing. So, what does it mean to look, to look awake and sober spiritually? I think... Besides, as we've been saying, eagerly expecting his return, that's what it means to be a child of the day and to be sober and awake spiritually. Besides that, he says, since you belong to the day, you've been saved by grace, not by works, put on the breastplate of faith, put on the breastplate of love, and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Those are the three things he says. This is what it means to be a child of the light or the day. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, arm yourself with the helmet of the hope of salvation. That's what it means. So faith, hope, and love. It's this triad you see a lot in the Bible of 
really what Christian living looks like, faith, hope, and love, kind of these three uh, big pillars. So that's what it means. To be a child of the day means, to use these three words, you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you hope in that salvation over and over again for your whole life with other believers around you, and you love others as a reflection of how God has loved you first in his son. That's it. You know, and you never finish that, or I'd never finish that. We do that. That's how we equip ourselves to live uprightly in this present evil age. We believe in the right Savior. We have hope in the right Savior. We love in light of a Savior who has loved us first. And actually look at how specific he gets in verse 9 here in the middle. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. For God has not destined us for wrath. So when, when Jesus returns for the Christian, it will not be a flood of wrath. It will mean salvation. We, we are destined unto it. I, who, who died? Look what the Bible says in verse 10. Christ died for us. So, so when he returns, it's going to mean we're going to see the one who loved us so much he gave himself. And we haven't seen him physically yet. Aren't you guys excited for that moment when you can see your Savior face to face, the one who was tortured in your place because he wanted to be? He wanted it to die in your place substitutionarily. No one's ever done that for you, right, at that level. But someone has in Christ, if you believe. The person of Jesus, the Son of God, who hung the stars in the heaven, condescended himself, descended to earth to walk among us and to die in our place for you. So Paul's reminding the church here, they already know this, but the future for you does not mean damnation. It does not mean condemnation. It does not mean wrath. You don't have to guess at this because you've been, de your destiny, it's a guarantee that you will be saved if you believe because God, is, God grants it. It's not up to you to earn it. If it were up to you to earn it, you could never be sure. You could never use the word destined. You can't destine yourself unto anything. Destiny comes from outside of us, right? God destines, he predestines, he, he allows, he causes, he enables, he resurrects. See the good news here? This is true for you too and for me. If you're saved and if you're not, this can be true for you today if you simply believe. For God has not destined us for, for wrath. So when he returns, it will mean life. It will mean happiness. It will mean resurrection. It will mean, it will mean joy. A few years ago, my daughter Jane, who's nine now, she's, uh, I think she was five or something when she wrote this card. I, I've got a picture of it here. She wrote this card unprompted. She just said, you know, dear God, I love you and I can't wait to play with you from Jay. <laughs> and then she drew herself and God with the light around his head there too. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to preach this card but I think, I feel like I could. <laughs> There's so much here. It's not scripture, but from, from the, you know, the vantage point, the lens of a five-year-old girl, uh, it, the, the theological posture she has in her mind and just body and trust for the future is uh, more radical, I think, than a lot of times where adults are at, you know, including myself. Is this what you want? Is this what you think about God? I remember when this came, when she wrote this, I remember thinking, just taking a deep breath and looking at it, 
and saying, that, that expresses my heart as well. That's just my sentiment. It's actually around Christmas time she drew this, and I, we're thinking about Advent and Jesus' arrival in the world and what that would mean. And I was thinking about the second coming, too. I thought that, that expresses kind of the desires of my heart as well. So thank you, five-year-old daughter, for, for that. So, but, but that's basically it. Uh, if you're saved by grace, you're going to think this. If you're saved by your works, you're going to fear his coming because you have work to do right? How can you ever be sure that you'll be saved? If you're a religious person who is trying to climb to God, you will dread his coming. You will never be sure of your, of your, your future with God. But if you're saved by grace, you'll believe, you'll believe you're destined. God has destined you, predestined you. You can never lose that. So you'll live secure and happy and free, joyous, loving your entire life. And, and you'll take your, your dying breath, you'll be thinking this, I can't wait to, to play with you. Uh, you know, and this, of course, supposes that God is fa- like a father, a loving parent. I uh, just love that on so many levels. But so, ag- so again, um, we don't fear uh, as if, did we do enough? We are rather like a child waiting for his father to come home and to play with him. That, that's what the gospel makes possible. That's what it enables so also note here, uh, these are defensive images, going back to the passage at hand, faith, hope, and love, are like a breastplate and a helmet. So I think that you know, what, what we see is, or the idea here to pull from that metaphor again is, the attacks of the demons of night and, and the lies of spiritual drunkenness will be no match for you or me when we're armed defensively in this manner. The idea is we're in a war. Whether you like it or not, you're in a war. You can't, you can't choose this yourself. <laughs> you're in a war, right? Wars can happen all the time. People can kind of be thinking, well, it doesn't really affect me. Like, no, I mean, it, it does. It, we're, we're in a war. And these are defensive images, so we can be equipped or not. The things he actually, it's interesting, though, he calls us to equip ourselves with are simple, gospel-centered, faith-based things and love. And so when we equip ourselves with the helmet of our hope, of the blood of Christ and, and this breastplate, we can take shots. And I think a lot of times the things we deflect are lies. So if you're hearing or ever hear the whisper, you can lose your salvation, speak back to it, verse 9, no. I am destined for salvation. I am loved. I've been died for by the God of the universe. So I, how can I ever lose that? What God has called his, who can take that away from Romans 8? We, we speak against these things. We, we absorb it. We deflect it. It's kind of like a, a, a Nerf gun against a steel-plated bread. It doesn't do anything, right? So if, uh, or maybe you're hearing, God might give up on me and not return. Well, no, Jesus promised he'll return. We speak that back to it. We think, oh, you can, I can do it. I'm a good person. I don't need God that much. No, it cost God his life to save us. Of course we need him. It's, we're, we're not good, we're evil, but God dies for evil people who hate him. And then he woos us back to himself. We might think salvation is dying for God, uh, like many different religions believe, as we've seen lately in the news. Uh, salvation is dying for God. And so people give their lives uh, by killing others uh, to uh, earn their way into heaven and to kind of secure through martyrdom a place uh, before the, the throne, a place of a kind of heightened stature in heaven, but our God says, I will die for you. I will die for you. You won't serve me, because I can never be served or given to. 
Bible says, who can give to God that he should be repaid? Implied answer, absolutely no one. So our God is better. Our God's more righteous. Our God is not just more holy, but he's just better. He's good. He, he loves us. He actually loves us. And so he comes to us rather than us to him. And so these types of passages, and many like them, these are just examples of lies, and there can be many more that you hear that you can, and you will be more equipped to not entertain them when you're prepared, when you're equipped with the gospel around your head and around your breastplate. You can, you can deflect lies that, or it might be half-truths, that are simply, simply not true. So that's what it means to be a child of, of the day. And there's many more things we could say, of course, but to equip ourselves with faith, trust in Jesus, hope, hope for the future where we don't have to fear it, and love for uh, God, but love for other people, especially Christians in, in our life. And Ephesians 5.8 says the same idea, walk therefore, walk as children of light, free of shame, not afraid of what people think about us, fearless because we're loved by God, uh, and not living in a way inconsistent with uh, the idea of faith in the gospel and, and hope. And so in that sense, I think we kind of separate, we separate things. Actually, God, the very beginning of the Bible, God does this. I love this. You get the same imagery where nothing's made yet, but God makes light and darkness, and he separates them. And he calls the darkness night, and he calls the light day. One of the very first things God does in history is create darkness and light, and he's already separating things to give us a hint that God is going to do that more later, right? And so he creates, but he is the light. He's not the darkness. He's not the night. He will be stronger then. The sun always comes up. The night always fades every day. And in the spirit of that, resurrection is inevitable. Salvation is inevitable. God will return. Uh, like as sure as the sun comes up every morning, we don't question that. How much less should we question the return of, of our king? So, so in that sense, this is how we separate lies from truth, darkness to light. We walk this way. We, we think in a lucid manner about our faith. We're free of shame because Christ absorbed all of that. We have no more shame anymore because we're still, we're loved. We're forgiven. We're not unprepared. So much more we could say, but that gives you an idea here today with this language. So where do we go from here then? Just to summarize this, and a few of these things I've already said, but this will serve as a summary. Uh, we'll look at verse 11 here in a second because um, he closes with a call to encouragement. But I think before we get there, uh, there's a call to believe. So here's what the Bible says here uh, through the lens of future-focused theology. Believe and repent. Believe in Jesus Christ today, you guys, and repent in light of him. Turn from your old ways and believe. It's an invitation to, to be yourself destined or kind of redestined if you want to think about it that way if you're already saved to be to to be loved by god you are he's died for your sins and the only thing he requires of you is to put on that breastplate of faith and say i'm arming myself with the fact that i'm not a good person i'm arming myself with the fact that i am unrighteous and in need of the god of the universe to do something something and he does this is amazingly more than we could ever ask or imagine and so the call is to believe put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Be sober spiritually. Think clearly and lucidly about your faith in Jesus Christ. That's not passive. That's an active thing. Are you doing that or not? You can't just kind of back, well, I'm a Christian. I, I was five years ago. You can't back into that. Are you actively, the, the act of putting a breastplate takes work, right? So think actively and lucidly and soberly 
about your faith in Jesus Christ over and over again. Arm yourself with the idea that Jesus is everything and you are nothing. He came to save you in love. You did not go to him to impress him with your works. He is going to descend. You are not going to ascend unto heaven. He's coming here to get us. Isn't that incredible news? He's coming back. What other God does this? The God of the Bible is distinct and unique. We are not floating up there with the hope that we're good enough. He's coming back to raise our bodies from the ground. That's how substantially robust salvation is. Every molecule of who you are will be redeemed by God. Not just part of your spirit and soul, but your body will rot. Every molecule of who you are, God cares about. And he will redeem. Just like the rest of this earth. God does not throw things away. He redeems them. So what's true about our bodies will be true about the earth as well. He will make it new and better. He will make it perfect. We get a glimpse of this now, but that was kind of last week's stuff. The first is believe. In your sobriety, spiritually speaking, receive the light. Second is love. And it feels like the, uh, the hundredth time we've talked about this in this book so far. Uh, and I think it's there for a reason. It's a major Christian motif. But what he means by love is love people. Love others, especially Christians, as Christ has loved you. Love is stronger than death. We see that at the cross and the empty, and the empty tomb. And it images Christ more than, more than anything. It's one thing you actually see uh, in Matthew 25, if you guys are aware of this. It's a picture of judgment when Christ does return. And one of the things that will be brought up at the end is the church will be very loving towards the body of Christ and the unsaved will be very hateful towards the body of Christ. So, so Jesus says to the sheep on his right, the saved, when you saw people in need or, or you saw people that needed help and were thirsty and were hungry, uh, or what you actually, through them, you fed me. You gave me water. You know, and the church is kind of like, when did we see you, right? When did we, we didn't see you. We just were helping people. He says, actually, when you did, when you did those kinds of things for the church, you did it for me. Love for Christians. So when Christ comes back, is that going to be a part of our story? You know, are we in a place where we have a place, a platform to love other Christians like Christ has loved us? And then for the goats on his left, for the unsaved, it's, it's the same thing. Love is actually a big piece too. So when we talk about preparedness, are we prepared with faith, but also believing in love that came down to die for us, for our enemies? Are we reflecting that love? We're not saved by how well we do it, but we are saved through an acknowledgement of it. And, and an actual embracing and a compelling by that love to love other Christians. It will be a part of the end. Make no mistake. So equip yourself with that, with that love as well. Third then, again, uh, be prepared is, uh, I was talking about this, be hopeful. You know, but I, I think that, um, and I, I, kinda, I guess I kind of already said this, but I just want to make sure this is clear. Um, because this is a really important moment. You know, when the scriptures get to this point, we're going to kind of move on next week. But the question here, I think, as it comes up a lot in Paul's letters is, are you prepared? When he returns, will you be actively equipped with the hope of salvation? And, and what you see a lot in the Bible is people that, that think they're saved or think they're Christians, but they're not really equipped with the right gospel. They, they're wearing the wrong helmet. It's it's a helmet of mush. It's not like an actual wartime helmet. They think they know the gospel. They, they're, they're walking. They're kind of like 
walking amongst non-believers and looking like they're saved, but, but they're not. And so some who call themselves believers in the end will be cast out into darkness. And it's, it's one of these, again, common motifs in the Bible of people you think will get in don't, people you don't think are in will get in. It will be, it will be a confusing but beautiful, uh, an upside-down world-turning moment in history where um, God will test the heart. What we really believe about God will come to light. What we really believe about the gospel, what we really believe about ourselves will come to light. And so if that's the case, we would be silly. We would be stupid. We'd be blind to not acutely think about these things right now because it could happen in the next five minutes. Who is he to you? Is he everything or is he just something? Or is he nothing? So 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 5 says, uh, examine yourselves. Uh, exa- we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Test, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? I'm going on here. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Indeed, uh, unless you fail to meet the test. And then 1 Timothy 4.16 says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch what you believe, your knowledge of the Bible, Watch that closely and care about it. We need to be theological people. We need to think very, again, acutely about who Christ is through the scriptures and know it well. Think about it and then watch our lives. Is it compelling us unto love? Is it compelling us to hope? Are we facing east, figuratively speaking, with coffee in hand at 4 a.m. waiting for that sun to rise? Do we want him to come back? Ask yourself that, actually. Do you want him to come back? If you're kind of lukewarm on that, or maybe if you're against that, maybe it's an indication that possibly you don't actually know what the gospel is. You're not compelled unto joy. You're not waiting for a father to come back and play with you and love you and save you and, and, and bring you into his new earthly kingdom forever. You're waiting for a judge. And a judge is coming. Wrath is coming. But for the Christian, the, the judgment and wrath was placed on Jesus Christ for us. So it's going to pass over us. But the question is, uh, again, do you want him to come back? And how is the gospel framing what your hope really is about? What are you, what are you looking for when he returns? This is what the Bible's actually, actually teaching. So, so think things like this. Uh, you know, this is, I think, a good example of the way Christians should think. Jesus could return at any time, but I'm a child of the day, destined for salvation. My actions of love fight spiritual drunkenness and keep me turned eastward, waiting for love himself to return for his people and to vanquish death forever. When he returns, I will not be ashamed, for I am clothed in grace, compelled daily to love and to good deeds that he places in me by his spirit. And also remember, um, I forgot to mention this before, when you say you're a child, you know, I was thinking, um, uh, just the, the birthing experiences that my wife and I both went through with our three kids and, you know, the other day for some reason. Um, when you say you're a child, you say you're a part of a family, not by works, but by birth, right? And those of you who are parents uh, r- right now, w- which of your kids did something wonderful for you before they were conceived in, in, your, in the wife's womb? Which performed? H- how many of your kids, when they were a fetus, lived righteously? before you and made you want to birth them into the world? Anybody? Who of you did that? Right? When the Bible talks about salvation, it says you are born, you are reborn 
We, we are born again Christians from John 3. We're not righteous people who do a lot of good to earn a place at God's table. We are children of the king, reborn by faith into his family, or we are people who are striving to be good before him but who will be cast into hell forever because we think we're something when we're nothing and we don't think we need God. Those are the two sides. Whenever you hear child, think saved by grace. Think adopted. Think God is everything. He rebirths me. He makes me new. He saves me. It's by faith I'm saved. Children don't perform for the love of their family. If that's been a part of your familiar, familial story, I'm sorry. God is not like that. But most, a lot of us haven't had that. We know that our parents love us unconditionally. It's the same with God. We don't perform to be loved. We, just, we didn't even choose to be born, right? We're just born. The Spirit moves, the Spirit compels, the Spirit draws to Christ. We don't even know why sometimes. So that no one can boast. No one can say, I did this, I believe this, I chose this, I found this, I knew the signs and times. I was at the cross knowing that God was going to do this at this time in history. No one was there. So that no one can boast or say, I knew this or that, or I'm good, or, or this or that. But only people who can say as sinners, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to save me from my sins, and I believe he's coming back to get me again because he can't stop showing me how much he wants to come rescue me. That's my hope. I'm a child of light. Say that to yourself, you guys, this week. I, I, repeat it to yourself over and over. Write it on your bathroom mirror or in your car. On the, say it to yourself. Like that song we just sang before the sermon, Be Still. I like how that song, it almost brings me to tears every time we do it, but now, now, why this fear? Be still, my soul, and know this peace. He's talking, you're talking to yourself when you say that. Be still, my soul, as a lucid preacher type in that moment. Be still, soul, know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty, your freedom. So rely then on his precious blood. right? Rely then on Christ's precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God. Don't fear being banished forever. Don't fear judgment since Jesus sets you free. You preach to yourself. You have to preach to ourselves or be in a relationship, better yet, in a lot of ways, where someone like I am now, like God is to all of us right now through his word, saying you are children of light. Live as though that's the case. You are a child of God by spiritual rebirth, not by works. No one's good, but God comes in the world to save evil people by dying in a crucified, torturous manner on a cross for us. Praise be to God. That's the gospel. And that's the type of gospel we're going to get, not just a glimpse of, we're going to see kind of completed in the end. That's the sunrise we wait for. That's why it's so worth being spiritually sober right now. We're not putzing around with our life, just kind of like twiddling our thumbs and just sleeping and getting drunk spiritually and not caring, not caring about church, just thinking we're okay. And yeah, I, I did that once. It's worth it. It's worth it. You know, it's worth reading our Bibles. It's worth going to church. It's worth knowing other Christians. It's worth it. You know, getting up early and facing east and actually caring about this stuff. And he's coming back. He's worth it. He's good. He's loving. He's going to save us again. It's going to happen. And I'm going to close by praying it's going to happen here even today. As the scriptures say, Lord Jesus, hasten your coming. So let's pray that together. God, thanks so much uh, for your grace today. Uh, thank you for the gospel imaged in your descent to earth, stated explicitly in the fact that we are not destined for wrath, but we are destined to eternal life. God, help us now to worship through song as we close our time together, and uh, to remember for the first time, maybe for some people here today, or for the tenth 
for the 10,000, that you are good, you are 